0: This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. I'm going to jump in, and um, I'm going to continue. This was week three of what's the current series? Do hard things. Everybody say, do hard things. How many love doing hard things? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Do hard things. Don't you love the thought of hard things? We've talked about just a a quick recap of the last few weeks, because I know some of you haven't been here. Um, You know, I think we are a society, we don't like to do the hard things, and I think part of the reason for that is that we've gotten far too comfortable with our lives. We've gotten more concerned with our comfort as a society than we have with doing what's right, and we've gotten more concerned with our comfort than we have even... Even doing what needs to be done, and doing what needs to be done for our families. Can you all agree with that as a society? And so we talked about how, we talked about the last couple weeks, how how we've used statements like, just do your best. Just do your best doesn't inspire us to go the extra mile, does it? Just do your best is permission to just do enough, isn't it? Well, I did my best. How many of you probably way too often do something and you go, Uh, that's good enough. (laughs) And then it's on to the next task, right? And we communicate this to our kids from a young age. We talked about how back in the day, man, I mean, there was no such thing as a teenager in the Bible. You were a man, and by the time you were 13, I mean, I'm sorry, you were a child. By the time you were 13, you were a man. You were a child, and then you were a woman. And we communicate to our kids today that you're not old enough, you're not smart enough, you're not brave enough, you're not wise enough to do something really big, maybe when you get older. And I think we start from the time our kids are a very young age, holding them back and saying things like, well, kids will just be kids. They don't need too much responsibility. When we look at it, and we know that in many cultures, adulthood all through history up until the last century was based on puberty. You turn 13, you better be getting a job, right? You're taking care of mom and dad's house. It's time to start having babies, right? Things have changed a little bit. We use the example of David Farragut, who was a Civil War hero. At 10 years old, he was a a U.S. naval cadet. By 12, he was commanding a captured British vessel. Talk about how we have dumbed down. By by 13, 14, 15 years old, we're giving out trophies for participation. Kids are riding the bench, and we're telling them, great job. We're giving them smiley faces because they didn't talk too much, and we're patting them on the back because they brushed their teeth. We have taught our kids, and we learned, many of us from a young age, to, that, that we're going to get rewarded for just the simple necessities, just the things that are expected. So how in the world do we expect our kids to do anything huge in life? They, why would they aspire to more if they're going to be rewarded for doing the bare minimum? And so I gave you three things uh, the first week. Why do hard things? Number one was sometimes it's the only choice to move forward. And by the way, you can follow along in your note sheet. It's also on the YouVersion Bible app if you log in from your phone. But sometimes doing the hard things is the only choice to move forward. We talked about Jesus and the disciples in the storm. There was nothing they could do. They had to press on through this storm, and they had to trust Jesus in order to survive, even though they thought they were going to die. We talked about number two, the reward is worth the sacrifice. Great things don't happen when we take the easy way out in life. We've got to understand that if we make good, difficult decisions today, we will reap the benefits of them later. And really, the harder something is, the more satisfaction we find when we complete it. Isn't that true? And the third thing I mentioned was proving our trust in God. Why do the hard things? To prove our trust in God. And we talked about how we've gotten so comfortable in our lives, and we've we've ordered and manipulated and controlled our circumstances and our environment to such a degree that we have no reason to trust God anymore. Most Christians aren't believing God for anything, anything at all. And then last week I went in and I talked about two more aspects of hard things. I talked, number one, about doing hard things that go beyond your comfort zone. How many of us have comfort zones? We all have comfort zones. Comfort zones are a good thing. Hopefully like me hopefully you love going home. Hopefully your home is a comfort zone. You love getting there at the end of the day and seeing your spouse and your children and sitting down and eating and relaxing. That's a comfort zone. But the problem lies in the when we don't ever when we're afraid to actually ever leave our house, right? Then we got a problem. Comfort zones can develop to such a point, they make us feel so secure that we don't want to change things. We're talking about that's really the problem with change. People hate change because we don't want to step out of our comfort zone, right? Talked about how many people get upset because somebody took their seat in church. I can't believe they're sitting in my seat, right? right? We don't like change because it pushes out of our comfort zone. We went on and we talked about the story of Nehemiah and about how Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king. It didn't take a college degree, he tasted the wine before the king would sip it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And he couldn't understand why in the world is God calling me to go rebuild the walls of my forefathers. The people had been back for 94 years and hadn't rebuilt these walls. Why should I, as a cupbearer, cup who don't even, not an architect, don't know how to build anything, why in the world should I be called back to do that? It pulled him out of his comfort zone. He had the life of royalty living in the palace. We went on and talked about that, uh, about how God is calling us today in the midst of what we see in our world, calling us the same thing, to do something great, to move us out of our comfort zone. And the second thing I talked about last week was doing hard things that go beyond what is expected. And with this, like I say, we live in this, in this society, It's been this become this good enough society and we've settled for far less than the best, far less than what could be, far less than what God has had for us in our society today, and really what we've done is We've satisfied, we've satisfied ourselves with doing the bare minimum of what those around us expect of us. We talked about complacency. We've become complacent. Complacency means self-satisfaction or smug satisfaction with an existing situation or condition. We live in a complacent society? Yeah. I told you all last week, I think my definition of complacency is, ah, uh, it's fine. How you doing? Ah, uh, I'm okay. How's work? Uh, it's fine. Complacency, right? Settling for the current situation, the current circumstances. And with that, we talked about the story of of, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I ended with with Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies... A living sacrifice. The word bodies there, we said, means that which is mortal. It's not talking about our physical body necessarily. It's talking about our mortal life. Every aspect of our life, we're supposed to live as a sacrifice to the Lord. That means that everything we do should be done with excellence. Everything, if the Lord pushes us to do something big, we should go right out of our comfort zone, and we should go beyond what is expected in our life. Beyond what those around us are satisfied with, because we're doing it as a worship unto God. Amen? So I want to talk about two more aspects of hard things for a few minutes today. And like I say, you can follow along in your note sheet there. But firstly, I want to talk about doing hard things that you can't do on your own. Doing hard things that you can't do on your own. How many of you know when God calls you to something, you can't do it on your own? Now, how many of you would admit this? How many of you admit that sometimes you have control issues? (laughs) There's people in here just lying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we talked about that, how in I'm totally that way. I love to to manipulate everything, look at things from every angle and make sure that everything is covered so that everything goes my way, right? That it turns out the way I want. How many of you know, 50% of the time, that don't work, right? It's a gamble. We try to control and manipulate everything. And I think, I was thinking about this, why do we get like this? And I think part of it is that I think we've been let down by others, right? I think that many times... People didn't do what they said they would do. Or they didn't do something the way that maybe we would have done it. And sometimes it's just easier to do it yourself. Isn't that true? How many times do we compromise with even our children? We want, we're going to tell them to do this thing. I'm going to tell them I'm going to have them take care of it. And then you look at it and you're like, nah, I'm going to have to go back like six or seven times and get on it. be easier just to do myself in one minute. Right? Sometimes it's easier to do ourselves, and what we're doing is, instead of making it a teaching moment and pushing our kids into accountability, we're giving them the easy way out, and what are we doing? We're doing it ourselves, right? The problem is, we've gotten so comfortable that we're not stepping out of our comfort zones, thus, everything is planned out and under our control, right? As best we know how. Leaving us in a place where we don't have to trust God and we don't have to trust anybody else. We use our logic and our common sense to try to get what we want. We figure it all out. And again, where's God? This tells us a few things. I was thinking about why when we get to this place like we have in our society where we figure everything out and there's not really a place for God anymore. I I was thinking a couple things. Firstly, we're not, especially as a body of Christ, we're not dreaming nearly big enough dreams anymore. We're thinking way too small. I think that if you can figure out what you're supposed to do, if you can figure out your dream, if you can make it happen on your own, with your own logic and common sense, I don't think you can even count it as a dream. It's just a task. When God calls us to do something, we're not going to be able to figure it all out. We're going to look at it and... And be overwhelmed and go, and it's going to make us say, oh, Jesus, I need you, (laughs) right? The second thing I thought of in this is we think way too highly of ourselves. Is it not true? We think way too highly of ourselves in our society today. Accomplishing God's will for our lives is not something that we're going to be able to do. We're going, it's not going to be able to be accomplished without trusting God and others, to make it happen. I I told you about a book I read. I'm going to give you a a quick excerpt from it. It said, American popular lore tries to persuade us that our destiny was won only by rugged individuals who stood tall, acted alone, rarely talked, and drank their whiskey straight. We're taught to admire the rebel, the loner, and the maverick. But the facts suggest that the achievements of nations like those of corporations, armies, universities, sports teams, churches, and families, depend heavily on people coming together to co-labor, to agree on a common goal, and then collaborate to make it happen. How many of you know that's true? But isn't it true that even our movies have taught us to celebrate the loner, the one who goes it alone? I'm a self-made man. Really? Wow. Why do we celebrate that? the Bible tells us, Proverbs 18.1, you know, I talked about this back several weeks ago during the, um, the series on community, but it says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Why? Because we were made to work together. There are giftings I have in my life that are supposed to be incorporated into your life to help you go forward. There's giftings in your life that are supposed to be incorporated into mine to help me move forward, to accomplish my God-given dreams, and vice versa. Does that make sense? As we were never meant to go this alone. We talked about how Nehemiah, when God first put this burden on his heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, we know that he prayed and he fasted for how long? How long was it? Four months. Pray, prayed and fasted for four months. And I was talking about how I don't, I don't think God waited four months to tell him what to do. I think he had two issues. Number one, I think that he recognized that his life was totally comfortable. He was living in the king's palace any one of us as Americans would have looked at this and gone, I must be in God's will because everything is going right for me in my life. Why in the world would I be called to go a thousand miles back to my homeland and rebuild these walls? I think the second conflict in Nehemiah was just this. I'm not a builder. I'm not an architect. I'm not a soldier. How in the world do I go back? How do I gather the supplies? How do I know what to get? to travel a 1,000 miles and get back there. How do I know? How in the world do I figure out how to build these walls? How in the world do I defend them? I'm not qualified. All I ever do my whole life is taste wine. Right? Two pretty big issues. Did Nehemiah end up doing it alone? No, he didn't. God used the king in his life to give him everything he needed, all the tools and all the equipment and all the supplies that he needed to make it happen. He got there and was able to rally the Jewish people together to help with this, right? They all came together to make this project happen because Nehemiah was way less than qualified, right? I'm going to give, like I told you, I've been trying each week to give a biblical example and then an example that's not in the Bible. So we're going to read, if you're um, in your Bible, if you would turn to Exodus chapter three, and I want to talk about Moses here for a few minutes. Now, most of you probably know the story of of Moses and, and what all happened, but If we backtrack just a little bit, y'all know the story of Joseph, right? Y'all know Joseph, you know how, you know, he was son of Jacob, he was, you know, he upset his brothers, they they throw him in the pit, they sell him into slavery, everything goes down at Potiphar's house, he ends up in prison, but he ends up interpreting, God through him interprets this dream of Pharaoh's, right? And so Joseph becomes number two in charge of all of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in the known world, right? So here you got Joseph there, and So what happens is there's this famine going on, and we know that Joseph's family comes to visit because they're hungry, right? And Joseph has got all this food stored up in Egypt. And so they come. We know everything that happens there. Basically, what ends up happening is Jacob moves his entire family to Egypt, right? And this was Jacob, his father Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? He actually had 13. 13 sons. He had one daughter, uh, only one daughter that we know of that spoke of in Scripture named Dinah, and who knows how many others. Unfortunately, girls weren't listed real often back then, but there's a lot of people, and we know from just the people that are mentioned in the Bible and their children, we know that there was at least 70 people that Joseph moved to Egypt. Now, when we get here to Moses, 430 years have passed, and they estimate there was now 3 million Hebrews. They had a lot of Of babies. A whole lot of babies. So you got the Hebrew people who are different from the Egyptians. They spoke a different language. They probably looked different. The Egyptians served a lot of gods. The Hebrews served one, right? So for 430 years, here they are, kind of the outcasts in Egypt, and the Hebrew people are growing very quickly in number. And the Egyptians start getting nervous, and they realize that these Hebrew people, if they wanted to, could truly be a force to be reckoned with, right? So they decided we need to do something about this. So what do they do? (laughs) Things escalate to the point where they just put them all in slavery, right? They make them all their slaves. How nice is that? Now the Egyptians have three million slaves to do all their work. And for population control, they decided for a period of time to kill all the Egyptian babies. We know that Moses gets hidden away, right? His parents hide him away. They float him down a river. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter actually ends up paying his biological mother to nurse him and help raise him. And so he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. He knew he was Hebrew. He knew he was an Egyptian, yet he was accepted. He was adopted into the family and raised as Egyptian royalty. Right? So then if we go on, uh, you're in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7 here in just a second. But we know that in this time, Moses has grown. And we see for the first time his heart toward his people come out when he sees a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian, right? He fights back and ends up killing the Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew slave. We know that the Hebrews didn't even know, they didn't even know what was going on because Moses tries to talk to them several verses later and they basically say, well, whose side are you on anyway? Are you Egyptian or are you Hebrew? Are you going to kill us like you just killed your brother? What does Moses do? He flees, right? He flees to Midian. And that's what we find in verse, where it takes up in verse 7. He's in Midian. He's established himself. He's got a family. And 40 years have gone by. And Moses finds himself at the burning bush. A bush that's burning but not consumed. And in verse 7 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Now, how many of you know, up to that point, Moses had to think, this is a good deal. The God of my ancestors that I heard about is about to deliver my people. Awesome. All for it. He's going to pull them out. I, maybe I can go join them now because he felt like an outcast from both, right? Maybe I can go join up with these people as God delivers them and everything. And then we get to verse 10. God says, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people of Israel out of Egypt. And then everything changes. Because if you look down to verse 11, the very next scripture, it says, but God said to Moses, the excuses began. God said to Moses, suddenly Moses realizes that God is leading him to deliver three million people out of the land of the most powerful nation of the world. Moses goes on in, in verse 11, he said, who am I that I should go? And God responds and said, I will be with you. In verse 13, he says, wait, what do I even who do I tell them you are? What do I say when they ask me questions? God said, I am that I am. I am the God of your forefathers. In in chapter 4, verse 1, he said, But what if they won't believe me? And he says, God says, Okay, I'll give you a sign. He said, Drop your rod on the ground, right? And drops on the ground, it becomes a snake. You look at the next scripture, it says, And Moses ran. Imagine God going, come on, dude, after four excuses, and God showing him his power. Moses is off running. He's going, Wait, 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 come back, come back, come back, come back, back, back. Makes him pick up the rod. He picks up, he picks up the snake by the tail and becomes a rod again, right? He says, Put your hand in your pocket, pull it out. And all of a sudden he had leprosy. He said, put it back in your pocket, he pulls it out, and he's and he's cured. God's going, I've got this. You're not alone, right? And then if you look in verse 10, Moses says, But I don't speak well. He said, I'm not an eloquent speaker. I'm slow of speech. God's response was, who made your mouth? He said, his word says, now go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. How awesome is that? In verse 13, Moses' exact response from the English standard, oh, Lord, please send someone else. He's still going. We see here the Lord gets angry with Moses and the Lord makes a little compromise, and he basically says, fine, your son, Aaron, your, your brother Aaron speaks well. I'll send him, and he'll be your mouthpiece, right? And we know the rest of the story. They go on into Egypt. Moses says, let my people go. Or, or no, he whispers to Aaron, let my people go. And, and Aaron said, Moses says, let my people go, right? Right? We weren't meant to live an easy life, and it's not something that we can do alone. We were meant to do something significant. We were born for significance. And so that would be my question. When is the last time you dreamed of something big that's too big for you to do on your own by yourself, that you have to trust God and you have to trust somebody else because you've got a list of excuses longer than Moses to not do the hard things in your life? Many times that's what God's calling you to. He's going to call you to something that you've got a hundred excuses against. Partially because you have to trust Him. You have to trust Him. When is the last time you dreamed something big? If you can figure it out by yourself, it's probably not God. What big thing are you believing for? That's the first thing I want to talk about. The second point I want to make here, I want to talk for a minute about hard things that don't pay off immediately. How many of you know as a statement, hard things usually don't pay off immediately, Right? Sometimes it takes years and years and decades for us to see results and rewards for the hard things that we do in life. We talked the first week about, how many of you remember the first time you bought a car? You bought your very own car. You did whatever had to be done in your budget. You adjusted, you borrowed, you adjusted your spending. You did what had to be done. You sacrificed so that you could get that car, right? We think about you know, I, you know? remember when you were in school, people saying to you, make good grades so you can get into a good school, right? And you're thinking, get into a good school? That's like four lifetimes away. I don't care about that today, right? Isn't that kind of our mindset as kids? It's like, you can't imagine college when you're in seventh grade. That's, that, that might as well be a million years away. We have a hard time even conceiving of such a thing. Some of us Hopefully most of us, we have some kind of future, we have some kind of investments going on, a 401k or something like that, and we see this money being taken out of our check every paycheck. How many of you would say that's a little hard sometimes? As you go through hard times in life and you're thinking, man, I could sure use that money. I sure need it today, right? But you will see the rewards of it one day, right? How many of you have ever started a business before? Anybody in here ever started? Yeah, a few. How many of you know, you start a business, rarely do you see a profit immediately. How many of you know, sometimes it takes a couple of years, doesn't it, before you begin to see a profit. You will work your tail off to be able, before you're able to see that profit. And then we know in the spiritual sense, Matthew 620 from the Message Bible says, Stockpile treasure in heaven where it is safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place where you will most want to be and end up being. We talked about this. It's really, it's all about sowing and reaping. If we boldly do the hard things in life today, we can rest assured that we will reap the benefits of it. Maybe not tomorrow, but it is coming soon, right? I think we have to learn to be faithful and to persevere. And I think that's another one of the issues. We've gotten lazy. We don't want to persevere through things anymore. We give up too easily when things get hard, right? But we've got to be faithful, and we've got to persevere, and we've got to keep serving and keep giving and keep investing. I think sometimes what, how many of you would agree that sometimes what trips us up the most are those small, monotonous things in life that we have to do over and over and over and over again, and we wonder, why in the world do I have to keep doing this? And it just drives us nuts, those monotonous things, right? But the Bible tells us that God cares a whole lot about the little things in life. Those little things are very important. And actually in Matthew, y'all familiar with the parable of the talents? It talks about a nobleman who uh, he distributes a certain amount of money, called talents, um, to, uh, to some of his servants before leaving on a journey. And when he returns, two of these servants, two of these three servants, have doubled the amount. They invested it. They, they worked hard with the money that the master gave them, and they doubled that amount, right? And the master goes on and says, you've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. The Bible says that the master actually rewarded him in the book of Luke. In the account in Luke, it actually says that he set them over cities. That's huge, isn't it? By just giving them a few talents and then working hard and multiplying it. But we know that there was a third servant, the one who did nothing with what he'd been given, And he got rebuked, and the master said, you are a wicked and slothful servant, and threw him out, right? This is all about sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Y'all know that every action in our life, no matter how big or how small, these actions determine the future harvest in our life in every area. And small seeds can do huge things, can't they? How many of you have ever seen a small weed that became a huge weed? You ever seen one of those huge weeds that grows up, comes up in your flower bed, and and you you neglect it for a couple of, you know, months, and, you know, it ends up about that big around, and you're going, how in the world, where did that thing come from, right? Little bitty seed can turn into a huge weed. We know a little seed can also produce a beautiful flower, Right? We know one seed can feed a whole nation, right? The small things matter. And I think that's where the lazy servants and many of us get so tripped up. We enjoy the harvest, but we don't want, we don't appreciate the sowing and the cultivating of the seed, right? We don't enjoy the waiting season for that seed to come up. Maybe we enjoy being strong and fit, but we don't enjoy exercise, (laughs) Right? We all want to do big important things, but the problem is we tend to discount the equally important small things that get us there. Does that make sense? I was thinking of, I told you I was thinking of a couple other examples. I was, I was thinking of a non-biblical example. And I remember, how many of you remember in the, the mid-80s to the late 90s when Michael Jordan dominated the basketball scene? I was not a big basketball, I'm, I'm not a big organized sports fan, however. That guy was just fun to watch. How many of you would agree? Michael Jordan was the man. He was fun to watch. There he is. Michael Jordan, considered one of the best basketball players ever. He dominated the sport from the mid-'80s to the late-'90s. He led the Chicago Bulls in six NBA championships, earned NBA's most valuable player award five times, five regular season MVPs, three all-star MVPs. Jordan became the most decorated player in the NBA. His estimated net worth today is more than $1 billion dollars. Michael Jordan said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. i failed over and over and over in my life, and that is why I succeed. How awesome is that? Michael Jordan could have quit when he was cut from his high school basketball team, Right? He could have said missing a day of practice here or there won't make much of a difference. Sometimes it's being faithful to the monotonous things and not giving up, being determined, and sticking with it that pushes us through. I'm going to give you one more, one more example. How many of you know who Colonel Sanders is? And I'm not talking about that weird new dude that got me in Colonel Sanders trying to be, trying to be, trying to be sexy with his fake tan and whatever. That's terrible, man. I remember the real Colonel Sanders. That was a man right there. Oh, who this new guy is? They need to, like, kick him out. I remember the story of Colonel Sanders. I went back and I read on him a little bit this week. Colonel Sanders was in his 40s when he was managing a gas station and living in a back room when he came up with his famous fried chicken recipe. How many of you love the famous fried chicken? Yeah, I, I, Growing up, it was not a church potluck until somebody showed up with the bucket right i mean really that first thing everybody that was the first thing that was empty too you had all these casserole plates and then you had the buckets of kfc and it was gone right it's the first thing so here he is he's in his 40s managing a gas station living in the back room when he came up with his famous fried chicken recipe there wasn't room to sell the chicken in the station so he sold it out of his back room that he was living out of in 1939 he bought a motel with a restaurant In July of 1939, right? In November, it burnt to the ground. He did rebuild it, but two years later in 1941, gas was rationed due to World War II, tourism dried up, and he was forced to close. Sanders was now in his 50s. He moved to Seattle and got a job as a supervisor in a business in Seattle. In 1952, he's now in his 60s, he finally franchised his secret recipe for Kentucky fried chicken for the first time to a local restaurant. How old is he? He's in his 60s. His terms, he was paid four cents per piece of chicken sold. A couple of years later, a new interstate was opened, and the restaurant had to close due to reduced traffic in the area, the traffic that was the only place that was selling his chicken. Sanders was now 65 65 years old and living off a $105 monthly Social Security check. Sanders decided to begin to franchise his chicken concept in earnest and traveled the US looking for suitable restaurants. Often sleeping in the back of his car, Sanders visited restaurants, offered to cook his chicken, and if workers liked it, he negotiated franchisee rights. Although such visits required much time, eventually potential franchisees began visiting Sanders instead. He ran the company while his wife Claudia mixed and shipped the secret recipe, the secret spices to restaurants. KFC was the first fast food restaurant chain to expand internationally, opening outlets in Canada, later England, Mexico, and Jamaica by the mid-60s. Sanders trademarked the phrase, It's finger-licking good, in 1963. and when he was, he was in his late 60s before he began to see success and close to 80 before he truly made a fortune. Sanders died in 1980 at the age of 90 years old. How crazy is that? Talk about sticking it through... And not seeing success until after you're 65 years old. I mean, you know, most people would have given up way before that. Martin Luther King Jr. said, If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep, Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets... So well, that all the hosts of heaven will have to pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Like a street sweeper, our actions at home, at school, at work, anywhere else in the community can bring glory and honor to God if we're willing to throw ourselves into it 100%. But we tend to get caught in this trap where we get stretched too thin and we give about 20% to a number of different things, right? And nothing is done well, and we settle for less than the best. And because God is good, by doing what He has placed before us, if we'll jump in and do what He's called us to, 100%, not having to figure it all out before we move, but trusting Him to jump into it, regardless of whether we think it's significant or not, we will find ourselves benefited and ready for what God brings next in our life. For instance... Would David have been ready to take on Goliath if he hadn't spent his childhood fighting off lions and bears and protecting the sheep? Right? He spent his childhood out there tromping through sheep mess, taking care of the sheep, sleeping outside with them, using a sling to fight off wild animals. We know that when Samuel came to the house to anoint somebody as king, he wasn't even called. All his other brothers were. Talk about feeling neglected and thinking your job is useless, that you're not noticed, that you're not appreciated. God was preparing him through the small things to be one of the greatest kings who would ever lead the nation of Israel, right? You know, anything of significance takes time. It trips me out how many people are struggling. They come to us; they're struggling in their marriage. And where did my buddy James Sater go? Where, there he is. He was talking the other day. He came, showed up from men's group, and he goes, "Y'all talking about me again today?" I was like, "No, we're not talking about you today." But I'm going to talk about you from the pulpit. That'll make up for it, okay? <laughs> Y'all know a number of years ago, James and Liz—they have a credible testimony about how their marriage. I mean, they were uh, there were divorce papers on the table. I mean, it was. And I remember a weekend, James is just—he's just. He's just he was an utter mess, an utter wreck over this whole thing. He was going to lose everything good that God had brought into his life. And a weekend, I remember him saying to me something along the lines of, I've been trying and trying and trying, and she's just not responding to me. I'm going, bro, it's been a week. But I've changed. I'm going, bro, <laughs> it's been a week. <laughs> you spent a few years messing it up. It's going to take longer than a week to fix it, right? Some things are worth us working really hard at and sticking in there. And I remember us talking about that back then and going, what if it takes a year before you see hope? What if it takes two years? Is it worth it for you to stick in there and stick with it? Anything that's worth significance is going to take time and it's going to take effort. we got to do the hard things today. Trusting God and trusting others along the way, knowing that anything significant in life is going to take time and it's going to take perseverance. We've got to step out of our comfort zone. We've got to start doing the hard things, going beyond what's expected, not going alone, but trusting God and trusting those that God has brought into our life, knowing that we won't see immediate results, but trusting God in the process and knowing that he's strengthening us for what's to come. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand up. Let's just bow our heads together. With every head bowed. Guys, the reality is God did the hard things already. Why do we serve him? We serve him because he loved us so much that he took our sin and our failings and he took them to an old rugged cross and he took it on himself as his own. He redeemed us. He did what we couldn't do ourselves. He did something great and of significance. He didn't settle for good enough along the way. Went all the way. Halfway wasn't good enough. Three quarters wasn't good enough. Seven eighths wasn't good enough. Jesus' eyes were focused on the prize. What was the prize? at the end of every service we make opportunity we give opportunity to get your life right with the Lord please don't let this moment pass you may have never given your life to Jesus before and I would tell you this is your moment listen this is truly the most important decision you can make in your life don't let it pass this moment determines who you belong to and where you spend your eternity. It even determines what your life will look like here on earth for the rest of your days. Are you gonna trust the Lord? Are you gonna walk with him? Are you gonna let him walk with you? Are you gonna let him direct your path? Are you gonna use that logic and common sense to try and figure out every step for yourself. God is so much bigger. His love is so much greater than you can fathom. And his arms are open wide to you today. There is a cost. He picked up his cross and he carried it to his execution. And we're invited in like manner to pick up our cross and to follow him. Dying to ourselves and saying, Lord, no longer do I live for myself No longer do I try and figure it out myself. No longer do I do things my way. But Lord, I'm going to live for you from this day forward. And I'm actually going to trust you. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when I don't understand. Even when it looks like things aren't going my way. Even when I'm overwhelmed. I'm going to trust you that you've got this. And I'm going to walk step and step, hand in hand with you. All the way to the end. Never looking back every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you, and you would say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus today, I need to get my life right, if you would say, I recognize that I, maybe I gave my life to Jesus years ago, but I recognize today that I'm not really living for him, I've been living for myself, and I need to just, I need to just align myself again back with him, and I need to get things right, if you can answer yes to any of those questions, just lift your hand and let me see, who would say, I need to get my life right with Jesus today, amen, who else? Come on, guys. God's stirring on some of your hearts. You know it. The Holy Spirit's moving on you. You feel conviction. Your heart is beating out of your chest. You know that God is drawing you right now in this moment. That's the Holy Spirit. That's his job, to draw you to the Father. And he's taking this moment. He's saying, now is your time. Anybody else besides those who have already raised their hands, anybody would say, yeah, who else? I need to get my life right with the Lord today. All right, you can put your hands down. Those few of you who prayed along with us, I want you to pray, who who raised your hand, I want you to pray along with us. And even if you didn't raise your hand, look, that's okay. There's no condemnation. But I am going to ask you at the end of this, as we conclude service, I'm going to ask you to come down and talk to our prayer partners. Let somebody stand and agree with you in prayer. Tell them the decision decision that you made. Allow them to give you a little bit of instruction and to pray with you before you go today. We're going to pray this prayer together. Everybody, whether you've given your life to Christ or not, we're going to all pray it together. So don't be ashamed. Do it out loud. The Bible says we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We believe in Him in our hearts. And we will be saved. So I ask you, don't focus just on the words coming out of your mouth. Let them come out of your heart. Mean them with all that you are. The Bible says that you, all things will become new. That you become a new creation and you're born new into the family of God. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that He paid my price. He took my sin, He took my failings, He took it upon Himself, and then He took it to the grave. My price has been paid. It's paid in full. And today, Jesus, I claim you as my Lord. You are my Redeemer. And I will follow you all the days of my life. Lead me. Guide me. That I can be everything that you've called me to be. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be everything that you've called me to be. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573. Or toll free at 866-383-8277.